Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Tēnā koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey. Today, from co-host Peter Bale's place at Hoon Bay. Yeah, it's looking very good. To ha- it's very good to have you in my sitting room, Bernard, while I'm hiding in my little office. But how are you getting on? Very good. And I'm, I'm loving, just absolutely loving the warmth and the daffodils and the flowers that are coming out. You can see why this is the time of the year that politicians choose for elections. Yeah, the feel-good factor. If only the harbour that you can see out the window wasn't filled with shit. Uh, that is a major problem. I blame Desley, but that's possibly because Wayne Brown has just pushed her out with a gigantic stick to do all the publicity yeah. about the faulty, the faulty, faulty yeah. system. And the trouble is, this is a very Wellington problem, and it's in Auckland. I think this would have um, gotten a lot more attention if uh, we hadn't been in an election campaign. A huge Absolutely. hole opened up in Parnell. And basically, all of the toilets in Auckland emptied into oh, the Oh, God, I hope it's not all of them, Bernard. That's totally disgusting. <laughs> Please don't go down that yeah. route, and, as it were. And it's, it's awful. It's absolutely No, but awful. it is. It's, it's also it's getting to the point where I should be able to go down those stairs in front of you and go for a little, little swim in the afternoons or the mornings mm. when, when it's high tide. And I'm just I'm a bit stuck at the moment with this whole I – look, I looked up Safe Swim just before you came around, and it's still all the inner harbours – Everything from everything sort of to the to the west of Koemaramara is mm. uh, is black, and you can't go in there. Only only the beaches of the North Shore are, um, you know, like uh, yeah. incredibly frustrating. That you know, one of these huge issues how how we haven't invested enough in infrastructure for thirty yeah. years is not really being addressed in this election campaign. There's been a lot of finger pointing and shouting, and people saying you know rates will go up much more if you're in charge than us and. Yep. And essentially, you know, we've been growing our population 2% a year for 20 years. Our politicians have accidentally on purpose engineered it, but haven't uh, invested in the infrastructure, in part because voters and ratepayers won't let them. And we're about to elect what is effectively the national party, literally with a small n, of the um, citizens and ratepayers, you know, who've been a pain in the ass on this issue. And we've got people in Queenstown falling, falling victim to, you mm. know, Bad water, um, you know. I think, but possibly, if we unified all of the um, water authorities and gave Tangata Fenua a bit of authority over it, a bit of engagement in it, maybe that might help. But I think that might not happen. Although, yeah. I'm surprised that Bernard Hickey hasn't gone and done a, a project on uh, what's it called, entities A, B, and C, which are working quite hard away in a little office in Auckland, big office in Auckland, which is essentially three waters. It's there. Mm. All the old people from Water Care have gone, and they're working and they're doing it. Mm. Yeah, no, they're hoping to basically get everything as as embedded as possible before the new broom comes in and sweeps them away. And I think they will be swept away in some form or another because it's the one thing that uh, National Act and New Zealand First, who are definitely going to be in this government, uh, the latest polls out today from Curia Mm. show that uh, they're now up over 6% in the polls. And uh, it's it's pretty much a given now that Winston is going to be back in government, and he is oh. eyeing up, I think, the deputy prime minister's job. And I wouldn't surprise yep. me to see him made be made foreign minister again. Oh well, foreign, well, so, so, yeah, I think we just said this last week, but mm. 
he mm. wasn't actually a terrible foreign minister, but where's he getting the polling that tells him being a complete prick to everybody he meets, but particularly journalists, is the way to go? I mean, I know people don't like well, journalists, but he's just being utterly obnoxious. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, for those people who haven't seen it yet, the interview that he had with Jack Tame uh, mm. last weekend was a classic of the type. I mean, it was actually uncomfortably rude. If Jack could possibly be bothered, it was actually actionable as well, because it said he was in mm. the pay of in the pay of other people. You know, it was mm. just outright said he was corrupt. It was outrageous. Mm. Mm. And at another time, there would have been a big, much bigger kerfuffle about it. But I think what's mm. happened is that it's become normalised now to yes, accuse journalists of being corrupt and um, useless and dislocated elites. And it's, nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, well, definitely. Well, you and I are definitely part of the elite, Bernard, as we know. And don't, let's not even talk about Catherine. She's definitely part of the namby pamby bloody elite. I mean, the elite. Uh, globalist. I mean, the, the, the globalist. globalist. I mean, elite. Rupert Murdoch attacking for, people for, for the elite, yeah, yeah. for example, the other day. I mean, Jesus I know, Christ. I know. Awful. Awful. And um, yeah, no, the 15 minute city, you know, global plot to take oh, over global, the world. It's a global plot. Yep. Global, it's the United Nations wants to, wants to take away our ability to walk to the grocers in 15 minutes when I'm. Determined to be able to drive to drive to an out of town centre and you know twenty yeah. minutes away in my bloody diesel car, my double cab Butte. Thank you very much. No, it's um it's the election in which Ford Ranger Man has won, and not only Ford Ranger Man but uh, Ford Ranger Superannuitant has won. Well, Bernard, I was thinking this as I was driving the other day when thinking about you being a bloody socialist complainer about this thing. Just how many people benefit from having double cab buttes. And uh, I did see a particularly obnoxious one driving along Ponsonby Road today with gigantic wheels and you know no particular need to be in town. But if you think, you know, double cab, so it allows all those nice workers in their um, high-vis suits to all go to work in one double cab butte instead of two. Otherwise, there'd be two two single cab buttes. Mm. So stop stop whispering, yeah. you know. Off, off to the job in marketing. Exactly. You know, in new exactly. markets. <laughs> you've, got a, you've, got a new, you've got to negotiate that curb. And then there's the car park. You know, you've got to be careful. You've got to, you need four wheel drive. You need bumper bars. You need the the scaled up uh, rubber uh, bumpers around yes. the wheels. You oh know, God, it's, I'm getting it's, yeah. it's brutal. In New okay, York. next time you come around, there might be one parked in my little car park spot. <laughs> just just to really piss you yeah. off, actually. Now, um, Bernard, what, are we, what else? Are we I, I, the other. What are we going to do today? So we're going to have Catherine on the environment shortly. Oh, yeah. We're going to have Robert Patman, I very much hope. And then we're going to have Craig Rennie. Is that correct? That's right. Josie's off this week, mm -hmm. but we've got Craig Rennie on. He's had a busy old week. He's the CTU economist who did the analysis showing there's just 3,000 households who'll get uh, Nationals $250 a fortnight in tax cuts. Great. Which, but are they the right, are they the right 3,000 households? Like, is my household one of them? I'm not sure. <laughs> not unless you've got two kids in childcare right now. Bugger. No, and, you earn, and you earn somewhere between fifty-five and $65,000 a year. Uh, okay. And, it's and, moving uh, swiftly on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's, um, it's one of these carefully- So it's probably Pocono Man. It'll be Pocono Man or woman, Pocono family. Yes. But what, of course, is more relevant and important, I think, here is that the 3,000 households ignores the $2.2 billion that's going to landlords. And in particular, there's about 300 or so landlords who own more than uh, 500 properties. Do you mean you mean they own 500 properties each, or you mean that collectively they own 500? Because that would be quite an impressive effort to run 500 properties uh, each. Yeah, no, there, there are several landlords yeah. with hundreds of properties each. 
And they personally are going to benefit to the tune of several yeah. million dollars each in tax cuts from the national government. Well, so they bloody should. They've, they've invested in pr- providing warm and dry homes for people, Bernard. They've sat on land, done nothing. I, and this is, I, if I wanted to have this kind of lefty nonsense, I'd, I'd, I'd be, be doing a podcast with that chap, Kyle Church, uh, who seems to be a nice chap, but he's rather, rather on the left. You know, I went and voted today, though, Bernard. Oh, yes, so you voted. We're, there's a mm. lot of people who vote early these days, and yep. although it's not quite as many as last time. As my father used to say, vote early and vote often. <laughs> yeah, but did you get your, your little card through in the mail? I did. I got my little card. I'm so impressed with the orange man. I'm so impressed with the ease of voting. In fact, I'm generally very impressed with the ease of government in New Zealand and the, the way the government has mollycoddled me through a week of, of COVID uh, isolation. It was mm. so impressive the number of times that I got texts from the Ministry of Health saying, you know, love Ashley, is everything all right? Here's your rules. And my own medical clinic was just astounding. They rang me every two days to make sure that I I was um, tickety-boo. And here I am, definitely tickety-boo. And we got some new research today showing that the efforts uh, the government took appears to have saved 20,000 lives. Yeah, tell that to, to the fucking freedom wankers. Sorry, yeah. excuse Why? me. Tell that to Brian Tamaki. <laughs> yeah, um, mind you, there's about three or four of these parties. Well, I call them the coven of cookers who <laughs> who are um, going to get 1% each, which will mean that that vote is wasted. The problem is Excellent. not enough of them were spread between New Zealand First and the three or four of them whose names I can't remember. Yeah. If it had been spread widely enough so they all got 2% each, that would be much better. You're going to step right into the schism of Waiheke, which I think is a fantastic microcosm for the whole of New Zealand, because I understand, my sources tell me, that there is a gigantic schism on Waiheke between the, shall we call them hippies? Yes. And between the, between the okay, the alternative people, between the anti-vax alternative people and the and the sensible anti-vax people, and it's a split right down the middle, and you know there's there's going to be trouble over there. People are being denied each other's marijuana collections. They're not <laughs> not buying the same um, gluten-free um, bread. You know there's trouble, and there's trouble at the movie theatre. But we'll come back to that one possibly. Mm. Yes, no, it's uh, well good good on you for voting. There's a lot more voting to be done in the next um, week. Oh, I intend to do lots more. Yep. <laughs> and one more debate where Chris Hipkins will be there this time after a week of COVID in a hotel room in Auckland, came out this morning, jumped straight into a crowd of people. Oh, had a sausage roll and buggered off. When we get to New Zealand politics again, I he is a really, ent- I told you, listen to that podcast of him with speaking to the mm. rest of politics. Yeah, that was interesting. He came across really yeah. well. We, we keep treating him like some sausage roll eating guy who was the hooker who didn't quite make it into the first 15. You know, he's no. a very clever man, and we just we don't mm. we ask him stupid questions like, "Oh, you're pleased to see the media again," as opposed to, you know, what the hell's yeah. going on, Chris, baby? You know? Yeah. No, I, I, he is an interesting character and very engaging and very thoughtful and authentic, and also very connected into you know how parliament and government works. Mm. He was essentially. Well, of course, he's never done anything else. That's the that's the other downside to him in a sense. Yeah, but I don't I think he's think ever had a proper comes... job, Bernard, like being a journalist or anything, or uh... out being a fence, you know, being a fencer or a shearer. Yeah, well, now he grew up as a. Uh, his father was a construction uh, guy, house builder. His father probably had a double cab ute, actually. I was always impressed with Chris Hipkins that when he lived in Upper Hutt, as a cabinet minister, 
he mm-hmm. would cycle from Upper Hutt all the way into Parliament most days on yeah, a road on which most people would argue is probably the most dangerous for cyclists in the country. Well, isn't there a bike track though now along the waterfront? No, there? no, no, no. Right along that main road. Around the main motorway. Bloody hell. Yeah, yeah, no, it's awful. I've I've done it a couple of times myself, and you do do take your life into your own hands. It's a Oof. tragedy that we're just spending two percent of our transport budget on active transport, so that's cycling, walking, scootering, that sort of thing. And uh, a good paper out this week from the public health communication people at Otago University that, you know, calling for more action on getting active transport going. Yeah, bloody nanny state. Well. Sorry, did I just say that out loud? Yeah, No, no. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to have a new government that comes in and, and clamps down on that, stops spending on cycling. But the rest of the world is not doing this. You will have heard in in Wales, they have a Future Generations Commission. And just last year, they announced that they would never be building another motorway. And in France this week, um, uh, we've we've learned that they have also stopped planning to build more motorways. Um, They've got a very good train system. Well, train system, it's filled with bed bugs. Speaking of socialism, ah, oh, yeah. I get bed bugs if I go on the bloody metro in Paris. That was, that was quite a story, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. May, it may also be mythical. It may also be mythical. I understand. Well, maybe it's a climate you know, change. There are pictures thing, of them, you know? but yeah, I think it's climate change. Are you going to use that yeah. as a segue to talk to Catherine? Uh, this was a very successful bed segue. Yeah. I think. Is, is, what's the what's the what's the bed bug situation on Auckland transport, Catherine? <laughs> I've, I've heard nothing. <laughs> But but this is one of the things with climate change. You do get you know new types of bugs and bugs in the wrong place and all sorts of pests mm. and um, plants growing in True. various places. And um, we learned this week that September was the warmest month that the world has ever seen, and not just by a little bit. It was half a degree warmer than the previous record. This would be like beating Usain Bolt's record for the 100 metres by running seven seconds instead of yeah. 9.3. And it is something else. Catherine, um, you've been looking at climate for a long time. What do you think of these these charts and, and numbers that were coming out in September? Yeah, there was um, the climate scientist, Zeki Hausfather, he put out a, a tweet that said it was well, absolutely gobsmackingly bananas. So yeah. there's the official, the official description. Um, but I've been looking at these charts on this um, website called climatereanalyzer.org. Mm-hmm. It's out of University of Maine. And so they kind of show, there's a whole set of charts on there that show ocean surface temperatures and air temperatures a couple of metres above ground level over the whole year. And then they also show kind of lots of years of history. And you can see on the, it's just amazing to look at these charts. And you can see that the, um, that this year, I mean, it didn't start and end with September, obviously. It's been way above the the norm, you know, the standard trend lines and above the, what do they call it, two standard deviations from the mean of the last 30 mm-hmm. years, most of the year, you know. So, yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing. An, it's an awful uh, scene that we have of, our climate appearing to tip over various points. And this week, uh, Catherine, you you listened into a, a news conference called, uh, an emergency news conference called by some Antarctic climate scientists. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, I, I think a lot of people probably would have seen this because they covered it on the news as well on um, Channel mm-hmm. 1 and 3. So 
but we, we put a story up on it, and this was a group of New Zealand scientists who work on research projects to do with Antarctic ice, and there had been a, an emergency summit, um, scientific summit, because of the amount of ice loss over this past few months, or the, mm-hmm. what, do they, what do they call it, the Antarctic minimum had been, or maximum, mm, yes. had been much lower yep. than than normal. And so far out of the boundaries of what normally happens that they were all sort of looking a bit, you know, a little bit panicky. <laughs> yeah. I mean, six six standard deviations away. Six, from seven the, standard deviations. Uh, it, something awful has gone on. And this, for me, is one of the tragedies of this election campaign, that both of the main parties have gone out of their way to produce policies either before the election or new policies during the election, which essentially refuse to address it, um, reduce the scale of the money that's being spent um, to deal with it, that are essentially saying, la, 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 everything's fine, when it's clearly not. And then you get your your potential Minister of Foreign Affairs starting to deny some of the basic um, science on it. I mean, one of the things, the the elision between, of the super right, of the hard right, between trans issues, ULES, Mm. climate change, push to zero, uh, net zero is such an interesting set of problems because it all makes denialism and and populism. They, they sort of just aggregate around these around these really quite critical questions. And sticking your head in the sand is a much well. There's going to be a lot more sand, but sticking your head in the sand is going to be a much is a much easier response to tricky problems. I think um, the amount of conflict and the difficulty that we have solving big problems going into the future is starting to look like some really tricky territory. And particularly when you, you have nations and huge populations that are in conflict for things like water. And as the cost of living rises, as we you know basically scramble and compete for scarce resources, be it water, um, food, and of course now these critical minerals, which we now realise that we need to build all the batteries and all of the solar panels that we're going to need to have a chance. Yeah, the economic models always show, you know, GDP growth continuing on into the future for years. And so the assumption mm-hmm. has been that people in the future will be richer than people today. And so they'll be more able to deal with these problems and we'll have more technology that we can invest in to do it. But it's looking more and more like, you know, people in the future are not going to be richer than people today. If anything, they're going to be made poorer by the effects mm. of climate change and by the effects of resource costs. So the chances of dealing with things in the future is, mm. I wouldn't say it's higher. <laughs> this is a very, very gloomy Friday afternoon conversation. <laughs> Sorry about it. Bloody positive. I mean, I, I noticed that the uh, the Auckland Rescue helicopter has a raffle, which I'll go and buy a few tickets for, of course, which allows you to win both an outboard motor boat and a, and a double cab ute to tow it around. I mean, that's the kind of thing we need more of, is a bit, a bit more weekend Kiwi optimism. Yeah. Yeah, um, more sand um, to bury your head in. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> you need the boat to find the sand. And just yeah. finally, um, Catherine, you, you're starting to hear some uh, some of the research that says our assumptions about what happens if we double the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, which is what we're tra- on track to do, that the old assumptions that we'd get to three degrees or so may not be right. Yeah, I mean, this is a bit of a tricky one to talk about because there's been debates about climate sensitivity since there has been climate change and different people say different things about it. So I'm not entirely sure how much weight to put on this. They're talking about the, also about the, um, the RCP, well, the 
pathways that the IPCC have put up in terms of potentially what where the temperature goes in the future. And the highest of those is starting to look less likely, so that's good news. Um, mm. And they may well revise those four pathways in the future down a little bit. But there's also this kind of whispering in the background that maybe you know, climate sensitivity might be. And this is how much does the temperature go up if you double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere that maybe there's some hinky bits in that that we ha- haven't fully accounted for. But like I said, it's hard to know how much weight to put on those stories because there has mm. been so much debate about it over the years. Um, and in the last kind of five years, they actually narrowed the bands of possibility and set more tightly around the kind of three degree line, which is the mm. middle middle one, but there is some interesting papers coming out. One of them from James Hansen, which is still being peer reviewed, so I don't know where that's going to drop out. But they were looking at the amount of sulfate aerosols, and one of the things that people have noticed is that since um, ships have reduced the amount of sulfates in their in their shipping and that they're burning for big freighters yeah. on. Um, that you're getting hot spots in the ocean um, because those sulfates were reflecting sunlight. And so when they're no longer there, you get more heat coming through. And that's kind of one of the issues I think that James Hansen has been pointing at. And other people, other scientists have said, well, there's other there's other things in the air that will reduce that, are, you know, that, that will have the opposite effect and will help yeah. to cool things down. And as long as it's balanced, it's all fine. But... It's quite an interesting idea, Catherine, in, in a world where people are arguing about geoengineering to solve these problems. The idea that I think I think shipping accounts for something like twelve percent of of global warming gases, and that sulfate one has been has been identified very early. But maybe that's an interesting mm. thing to think about for the people who are advocating geoengineering. There is some, you know, proposals that are starting to bubble up around people, you know, putting all sorts of. Um, uh, particles into the upper atmosphere to do the reflecting, yep. um, which and the ocean, uh, yeah, yep. yeah, Absolutely. and which which yeah. would be uh, one of those you know last resorty type things where effectively one country makes choices for the entire world and just does it. An interesting problem, Catherine. Thank you very much for coming on. Lovely to to have you on. And see you, Catherine. Uh, congratulations are in order because this week was our most trafficked week on the website the Kaka and that the most people arrived they looked at the most pages and that was because of some extra cool. climate material that came on this week thank you very much Catherine excellent and a guest post from Catherine Knight um, helped boost those numbers as well yes yeah. yes that was fantastic um, Robert Robert how are you hi you, you've got your, you've got your intellectuals bloody bookcase behind you and I just noticed one of them <laughs> apart from that 50 of them are written by you, that there's one up there which <laughs> seems to have Picasso's Picasso's Guernica on the cover, which looks like a rather wonderful-looking mm. book. But Bernard will turn his thing, and you can see my books on my book, because Bernard's, Bernard's broadcasting from my front room today. Oh. <laughs> so we, we show each other's books. Yeah, there you go. That's, yeah, exactly. that's a classic yeah, Zoom, well. Zoom trope. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. I don't, yeah. How, are you, how are you, Robert? Are you, are you, I'm fine, are you, thanks. How are you doing? Been an interesting week, hasn't it? Where's the Patman Warriometer going? With respect to the election, everything, the world, everything—not not to do with your thirty houses in Dunedin or your <laughs> academic career, which we know is which which we know is burgeoning. I mean, the international. You wouldn't think I supported a capital gains tax to listen to you, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was just thinking, actually, given the volatile developments in the United States at the moment, mm. uh, I was just speaking to a German colleague today, and 
you know, I, I said to him, uh, it would be a good idea for Europe and the rest of the liberal democratic world to prepare for the possibility that America may not be able to sustain its commitment to Ukraine. And they Absolutely. better stop relying on that factor. And in a sense, you could argue that what's happening in the United States is a sort of logical spin-off from the, you know, the dreadful scenes we saw with the attempted storming of Capitol Hill yeah. on the 6th of yeah. uh, January. This is a downstream development. Uh, and there, of course, uh, Mr. Trump now seems to be throwing his hat in the ring to become Speaker, just when he could take up the position, given all his legal woes, is it'll be a bit of a part-time speaker. I, I've only seen that on some ludicrous Substack. I haven't seen it on a on a on a well, respectable website he, yet. He has said some yet, stuff, but, and you know, w ama more amazing things have happened. Yeah, he said some stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think that would probably just about implode the party, actually. But that's another story. <laughs> yeah, but what's interesting about you? You mentioned Germany, and I I think it is sort of. It's been one of those weeks where the uh, foundations underneath the support for Ukraine really started to crack and crumble a bit. As we talked about last week, the mm -hmm. election of a pro-Trump, sorry, pro-Putin, perhaps he is pro-Trump too, pro-Putin mm. uh, leader in Slovakia. And also, obviously, with the, uh, the solution to the budget crisis in um, the United States being to not spend money uh, or not send money um, to Ukraine. The other thing that's interesting about what's happening in Europe is the rise of the alternative for Deutschland party to number two mm. in the polls in Germany. They're obviously yeah. um, connected or funded. And uh, great friends of Mr. Putin, Bernard, who a lot of investment's gone in by Mr. Putin in the past. So he'll be pleased about that. Yeah, he played a long game and it seems to be paying off there. Um, yep. Do you think that the the support underneath Ukraine will be able to hold on? Well, it, it's very difficult to predict. Europe's facing, and perhaps NATO's facing, one of those moments, which I think they've been anticipating in the post-Cold War world, although it may have come a bit sooner than some of us realise, uh, whereby the United States, for domestic reasons, can't actually demonstrate international leadership. Now, we haven't got there yet. And I know a, a majority of Republicans and a majority of Democrats are determined to support Ukraine. Mm. And um, although Kevin McCarthy was ousted by what somebody called the <laughs> Make Putin Great Again uh, faction of the Republican Party, um, it, they're, they're a relatively small number. Uh, but of course, they don't hold back. And they're certainly getting a lot of support from the person they look to as their leader, which is Mr. Trump. But uh, it, it is, you know, an interesting thing. Uh, I was interesting today as a the, the internal criticism of Olaf Scholz is beginning to really escalate. He's being referred to as Olaf Chamberlain. Uh, Scholz <laughs> made a comment while in Granada that he couldn't provide the Taurus missile because it would be an escalation. And of course, that led to some furious reaction on social media, mm -hmm. people saying that Scholf is completely muddled strategically. The implication of what he's saying is that not only can Mr. Putin invade a country, he can actually de uh, determine the assistance that then goes to the victim of that process. And uh, one of the reasons that Mr. Schultz is very reluctant to provide the tourist missile, because of its uh, the way it's put together, it would be a very, very useful weapon to use against the Kerch Bridge. Mm. 
And he, uh, Mr. Schultz knows far well what a symbol that is for Mr. Putin. But mm. again, Mr. Putin invaded the country. He should have to take the consequences. Mm. And uh, I think he's going to have to back. My, my prediction is uh, Mr. Schultz did a holding action while this furious domestic reaction started, particularly in the Christian Democratic Party. One of his first reactions was to say, well, we will make uh, an extra Patriot missile defense system available. But I don't think it's going to stop there. I think uh, uh, he may well have to give way. But it's it's, it's agonizing. And yeah. um, I think Mr. Putin will derive a lot of um, satisfaction from knowing that he's still got the capacity to effectively paralyze Germany's defense decision-making. It's very interesting, Robert. I, I um, wrote something this week for the spinoff thing, uh, having listened to Stephen Kotkin, the, the very clever, yeah, slightly whiny-voiced American mm. historian who's done an amazing double album, double album, double, 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 uh, autobi- a double biography of um, Stalin. Um, He's got the third yeah. section, the third um, volume's coming up, I think, The Death of Stalin. Yeah, yeah, now that I've heard his voice, I'm just not sure I could read yeah, his writing. And Stalin's successor, Putin, yeah. You know, he, he's talking about the need for, a, for an armistice now. Because he says that you know Ukraine has just lost too many fighting people, fighting men. It's destroying the country. It needs to settle its situation with Europe, and that we should actually constantly you know get an armistice, get talks going, and then concentrate on regime change in Russia, which is a slightly terrifying set of combination yeah. of events. And I, 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 not unreasonably, although somebody wrote to me saying that it was unreasonable, tying that to this question of whether the U- Ukrainians have got enough to, to break through. And of course, they've done all of these spectaculars. They've done brilliant things, attacking fascinating mm. things, attacking the Kerch Bridge and the Black Sea Naval Command and so on. But you know they must be getting exhausted, both in terms of volume of people. And you're our friend, or at least acquaintance, and uh, Phillips O'Brien, the um, yeah. military academic, was essentially making the point that, as was Kotkin, that, you know, the Ukrainians have been uh, fighting with one hand behind the ha- behind themselves because of this idea of escalation, and even if they get F-16s now, they're then going to face the S-400 and F- S-300 Russian defences, which apparently for, you know F-16s have never in fact faced. So we just don't know. Be quite fascinating actually to see what will happen with a NATO quality air force going up against the Russian air defences and and Russian aircraft. But in your very good article. Peter, you did uh, quote uh, Phillips uh, O'Brien, did, and he yeah. actually disagreed with Stephen. A- absolutely, Cockin. absolutely. And he he made the point, he basically implying that that sort of analysis largely discounted the very real damage the Ukrainians have inflicted on the Russian military, and the Russian military is not in great shape. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 the the other thing here is um, we are very much looking at a conflict that's in in play. None of us know the outcome. We may wake up one day and part of the Russian front has collapsed. The, ra- the, other, the other thing you have to take into account here, and this has been pointed out quite strongly by Ukrainian military in the last two days, and something that my German friend picked up in the conversation today, is that they've had to remove, as part of their counteroffensive, hundreds of thousands of Russian mines. Yeah. And he said it's impossible to have a lightning offensive when you're doing mm. that, and plus they haven't got an air force, or haven't got an air force that can dominate the Russians. Uh, so I, I still think um, this this could, I think there's some twists and turns mm. here. I don't think it's uh, as Kotkin says. The other thing is, I don't think the Ukrainians are in any mood uh, to make a deal with Putin. 
I mean, just think of what Putin's done the last 24 yeah, hours. Yeah. He, he's, he's killed 51 people in a cafe with a precision munition. Mm. Uh, all civilians are fair game as far as the Russians mm. are concerned. It's going to be very difficult yeah. to say to the Ukrainians. Uh, the big question for me is, is whether other liberal democracies, including our country, which mm. hasn't done enough compared with the Australians. The Australians are making new drones available. Well, again, has that even be, has that been asked a single time in this election campaign? No. Is our defence spending mm. going to go up to two percent? And which country depends on the rules based exactly. system more than any others? It's little New Zealand. And this is our fault too, because we know Bernard and I did talk about bringing in Jerry Brownlee, and and we probably should have had the other future foreign minister. And you know, I mean, that will that will be an incredible sort of mud fight between Jerry and Winston Peters over the foreign ministry. But you know, foreign affairs hasn't surfaced at all. The China, the attitude to China has just been about, oh, would you go in and would you go in and you know support Taiwan. It's It's been ridiculous. Well, in the second debate, they did touch on foreign affairs a little bit, mm. and AUKUS came up, and uh, also the question of defence expenditure. And uh, what I was taken aback by was that Christopher Luxon said, eventually, he wants New Zealand to get up to 2% of yes. GDP for yeah. defence expenditure, yeah. which mm. I was surprised to hear because there's great scepticism. And, and Labour, by the way, are playing the defence card. Uh, sort of, anyway, not really playing it, but airing it, um, because they made this announcement that they're going to review the 1990 Defence Act as part of that process um, to to reassess the international security environment, which they see as completely different. Mm. And they said only Labour can be relied upon to come up with a robust response to that environment because uh, they pointed out that they've increased the salaries of Defence Force personnel they're also calling for the remuneration authority to include all serving people in yeah. the New Zealand Defence Force, not just the chi uh, defence chiefs mm. or chiefs of the various services. They want that so that all people can be properly remunerated. And as they put it, we don't get into a situation where, once again, we have retention issues. So, mm. yeah, it's interesting, but you're absolutely right. Foreign policy... Security policy hasn't figured strongly, mm. but there's a lot at stake for what's going on in Ukraine mm. for New Zealand. Well, what can we do, Bernard? Can we can we somehow address this? On the, I mean, that's, I, I don't want to tell you how to run the Kaka, although I do have a column idea for you next week that I might even dare to write myself for the Kaka. I would, but be very um, happy to publish it on the. Can on we? The is, is there a way that is there a way that we can somehow address this with a with a guest spot on any of these with any of these people, or do they just want to talk about co governance? Uh, no, um, and after I've asked some questions about um, real estate and interest rates, I, yeah. we, we can talk about you know, <laughs> we can talk about that <laughs> and again. double cap utes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You can smuggle that in towards the yeah, end. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, but th there is something live at the moment in this foreign mm. affairs debate, which is AUKUS, and the debate yeah. is is very active in Australia, where once the sort of for the mm. want of a better phrase, blitzkrieg of the announcement happened and everyone thought, well, that's a done deal. There's nothing we can do about it now. Um, there's a much more nuanced and uh, active debate going on about AUKUS. Tell us about what you're hearing. Yeah, I, that's something I picked up in a, when I visited Canberra a few weeks ago in mid-September. And that, in, that surprised me because I had assumed uh, from a distance that the rubbishing of Paul Keating by the political establishment in Australia was widely supported by the think tank community and also the military. But in fact, mm. just the opposite. In fact, uh, quite a few people in the military were saying Keating's got it right. This is 
another uh, analyst from the uh, Lowy Institute said, we're putting far too many eggs in the American basket. And the other thing that really worries the strategists and the the military thinkers is the fact that AUKUS, uh, they're having to restrain their current military expenditure to accommodate this huge single biggest item of uh, expenditure in national security history for Australia, which is the nuclear power submarines. And as one <laughs> analyst pointed out to me, all this restraint is occurring in the name of coming up with more credible uh, counterweight or countervailing capabilities to China, but it only starts in eight years' time. Mm. Meanwhile, China, it, it's, he said, is creating a window of opportunity for China. The, the other concern that we haven't discussed so far, though, Bernard, um, is that there is also another concern that you it, it's un, given the pace of innovation in the uh, defense area and else other areas, quite frankly, there is the real risk that Australia will be spending a lot of money on military capabilities stretched over 30 years, which may not be so applicable when they're actually deployed. Um, somebody pointed out that uh, you know you may have a swarm of drones which may be able to seriously debilitate and undermine uh, nuclear power submarines when they surface and things like this. You know, uh, there may be underwater capabilities, underwater drones that can attack uh, nuclear submarines and incapacitate them. So th- there's real, f- I, you know, what I picked up um, when I was in Canberra was real anxieties that Australia had made a massive commitment without thinking it through. Mm. And there's also real worries about what we just spoke about, the American situation, the political volatility. Mm. The Australians are no more keen than New Zealanders are on Mr. Trump coming back to power. Because you're essentially writing a, you know, Hundred billion dollar check or whatever it is to to back up a government run run by Donald Trump. Yeah, mm. so it's a very. I think it is a very fluid situation. And Robert, you're most welcome to stay on while we while we go into some domestic politics with Craig Rennie, if that's all right, because you did a marvelous job of it last week. No, that's fine. Thank and, you. Uh, and we might bring Craig in on foreign affairs next time. G'day, Craig. It's Peter here. Oh, this is what I like. Three, we've got four white men. This is excellent. Good. This is my kind of. <laughs> this, this and I is the go, of a podcast. Bernard and I are going up the road, a road shortly, and um, he's going to put something black on, and we're going to go up the road and hang out and have a and have a beer with a whole bunch of other uh, white, mm. slightly grey-haired old men, boomers. Not that you're. You look as though you're too young to be a boomer, though, Craig. But I suspect <laughs> the other three of us might be in that territory. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming along, uh, Craig. Um, and uh, Josie is away at the moment, but um, I hear that you, you've you've been uh, hanging out uh, in the in the same places, thinking about the same things, international development and various things. But this week, you've had a heck of a week analysing the National Party's tax cuts plan and surprising everyone, I think, by coming up with the actual numbers showing just how few people will actually be getting the full $250 a fortnight uh, carrot that's been dangled in front of the population. Tell us about the, you know, why you decided to do the analysis and, and how you came to that, to that result. So you absolutely right, Bernard. There's been a lot of loose language around what people will get. Um, there's a lot of use of average, um, sort of just left hanging as a statement. So just running the back of a cigarette packet calculations that you do as an economist on a day-to-day basis, you know, if it was an average figure, then on the 1.6 million households, then that tax bill would be $21 billion. 
that can't be the case because we know that's not the right number. So as a consequence, that average has to be hiding something, has to be really uh, hiding some numbers underneath. And when we took apart that number um, using the publicly available data, it very quickly became apparent that the number who would receive the, the claimed $250 per fortnight payment got progressively smaller and smaller and smaller. So we started off at the beginning, 1.614 million households um, in New Zealand, HL, in the Household Labour Force Survey. Then when we asked the question, well, how many of them have children in um, on that basis? Then that's 467,000 households. Then when we said, well, how many of them are actually paying childcare costs um, on that basis? So 135,000. And then when we maximise the number that could be paying $300, um, it turns out it's 35,000. So then we say, okay, how many of those households are in the right income group in order to be maximising their tax cut? Well, that then takes you from 35,000 down to six. But then you need two adults, both adults, being able earning the right amount of money in that household. So we very generously then said, well, let's assume 50% of all of those people are earning the right amount of money in that target group. It then becomes 3,000 households. So 3,000 households is very likely an overestimate of the number of households who will get the maximum 252. Yeah. Craig, just, I know you're an economist rather than a politician, but you're operating. I mean, I'm sure you chose that picture of Christopher Luxon that the Council of Trade Unions put up and everything, which is <laughs> which is an excellent picture of uh, of, of Muxon or or, or Lulldoon. But um, <laughs> um, Luxdoon, perhaps. Um, yeah. Craig, I'm, sure the, the, I'm sure the CTU has some AI which selected yeah, the yeah. picture. But Craig, the, the, nobody gives a shit, do they? They just they just want to hear the word tax cuts or the the two words tax cuts, and it's all just oh tax cuts and it's and it's about finding uh, what they used to call in England clear blue water between the two parties. Doesn't matter that there's only three thousand three thousand people going to be affected by it. It's that oh there's a difference there because I also noticed Luxon the other day doing the classic thing which I'd love you to address, which is the idea that there are various people in the Labour Party surprise surprise who would quite like a. A, a wealth tax, and so he was saying, "Oh, they'll roll, they'll roll, Lux, roll Hipkins, and have a wealth tax." When we know that large numbers of people will uh, will vote against their own interests, so I don't, I'm not, you know what I mean? It's 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 the the wealth tax is we know is very much in people's interests, even if I disagree with Bernard's view that the government will spend it better than I would. But it's just the idea of a wealth tax, and I'd like to be wealthy, and a wealth tax, oh, and tax cuts, and I'd like my tax cut. Please. Well, perhaps I mean perhaps I'm just a, it's just my nature, Peter. But I'm slightly less cynical than you. I think Jesus, people do actually on. want. Yeah. What <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I do. I think I think you know. Regardless, we have a responsibility as people who know things and and have this information to put it in the public domain. What people do with it, it's up to them. Absolutely. And um, we have a responsibility to make sure that when people go to the polling booth and they go to the ballot box, they have as much information as is possible. Again, what they choose to do with that. That's entirely up to them. And are you disappointed sometimes with the standard of the, you know, you put this kind of stuff out in the domain, in the public domain, and then it becomes argy-bargy and, sauce, and sausage rolls? No, because it's inevitably going to be argy-bargy and sausage rolls. That's just politics. My job isn't to criticise the media. My job is like, my job isn't to tell the media or journalists that they've got things wrong. My job is to convince them that my numbers are right. And so in terms of what we're doing, we put out some numbers. We backed up our numbers with evidence from official sources and then we 
provide a story as to how we think we've got to the place that we've got to. That's our job. How then journalists choose to use it, I can't predict, but actually, more importantly, yeah. it's up to people to interpret themselves because they, they yeah. don't they don't just take the, the, the information of journalists valuelessly as well. That's a very – Craig, I wish – would you come on more often when you do – well, let's get you a decent microphone because that's a very moderate – no, but it's a very moderate and thoughtful way – to think about the relationship between people like you who are doing serious analysis and the journalists who are, because I don't think it should be just argy bargy and sausage rolls. But there is, and I just took the liberty of looking up the word argy, the phrase argy bargy, to wonder where it came from, because I was thinking it had to come from Argentina or be about Argentinians. But in fact, it's an extension of argle bargle, uh, which came up, I think, in 1887, judging by by Wikipedia. But I also noticed mm. that there's a, an Indian restaurant in Christchurch called argy bargy. Which I rather like the idea of, <laughs> but it's a, don't you know? It's a very interesting intersection that you guys, you know, you, even the bank economists, um, the various analysts who are putting serious information out into there, the Bernatikis of this world, who actually do a bit of number crunching. You know, how do we get information more effectively to the public in this? Or does it? What's what's you know, what are the barriers? Well, I think first of all, things are complex, and these stories are always complex. So, how do you tell them? In is and it's clean and it's straightforward a fashion where you don't frighten people with numbers. And also, you've got to be honest. Where you, where you have degrees of uncertainty, you've got to be honest about those degrees of uncertainty. You've got to be able to say, do you know what? We sort of know this. We don't really know this. So when someone says to you, um, a tax cut is going to help energize the economy, it might. It might not. Um, that's as much a political statement as, as it is a valued an evidence-based economic statement. So you've just got to be honest. And in our job, in my role, and I'm very lucky in my job, I've got the best job in the world um, in my in my position, um, is I get to tell people what is, from the, from the trade union's perspective, its view of the universe, and here's the evidence to support its view of the universe. Uh, we're very lucky, um, Craig, that you've you've got the time and the um, the background to to do it as a, a former Treasury official and also an advisor to Grant Robertson. It's really it means that you you know where the bodies are buried and how to look through the data and how to download. He the probably was one of the fr- bodies that got buried when he when he proposed <laughs> the wealth, wealth tax. <laughs> Funny. So um, it is great that you're able uh, to do that. And one of the reasons is that we don't actually have a flourishing community of think tanks other than perhaps one, which is pretty well funded on the you know right wing, you could say, which is the New Zealand Initiative. But the various attempts to set up uh, left wing think tanks have sort of stalled. And one of the beauties of having a vibrant community of think tanks, which is separate from universities, separate from government, separate from industry bodies, separate from political parties, is that they are in a position to, with authority, uh, frankly, call bullshit on stuff, but mm. also you know, come up with new ideas outside the political realm, which might feel dangerous to start with, but w- which might crank open the Overton window. Do you think? Some, a, do you think? A, some... a, a, do you think a really excellent podcast should, could sort of morph its way to being a think tank? You know, a podcast that wasn't afraid to tackle the big issue, the well, big issues. Well, I'm beginning with H. We, yeah, we, we don't have enough middle-aged white men really to make that happen. We need at least two or three more in this panel. <laughs> but um, it is a particular problem in New Zealand, and it's one of the reasons why I think we've got such an arid political landscape where often we just come back to the same old fights and the same old things get said, and we don't actually sort of move on. Yeah, I wonder actually what we need to do now here, Craig, is bring in Patrick Smelly, 
who's the other i mean i i, th- I think of um bernard and, and me as the voice of reason voices of reason and in fact our new political party is going to be called voices of reason no because um, we 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 talk too much <laughs> to be the silent majority well, I, I think i think the key challenge that bernard outlined is that essentially you know in not having those centers of power those centers of new ideas then you create you create blockages to getting new ideas accepted. You create blockages to having, you know, existing concepts explored, but better. Um, you know, Bernard, I know over the past few years, because we've had this conversation many times, we've discussed the, the treasury consensus on this, the, the economy in terms of having low debt, in terms of having spending at around 30% of GDP, having the, the big four reforms of 1991 still haunting the country mm. in terms of the Reserve Bank Act, in terms of the Public Finance Act, in terms of you know, the, the Employment Relations Act, and, and how without a vibrant community really channeling and having conversations around those things. Mm. Um, now, that said, on the other side, it means you're less likely to end up with a Liz Trust government. So it has its pros and cons. Ah, right. Because yeah, they sort of basically took one particular think tank, Holus Bolus, and basically ran the government. Yeah, well, I, I, think tax, I, think the, I think the Taxpayers Alliance is, is the people we should be listening to. We well, could have the, gold, the golden mile should be, should be 60, miles, 60 miles an hour with parking on both sides and fuck the pedestrians. Yeah. And Craig, I, let, me, I, let, me ask, <laughs> let me mention something to you that I, I, I was that reading. escalated. Yeah, well, pedestrians—it's bloody free enterprise. If the pedestrians have any good god sense, you know, they're, they're not going to get run over. Then that's a perfect libertarian view. I was really struck. <laughs> I, I thought I had um, read enough reviews of it and enough excerpts from it. A friend of mine, Michael Wolf's book, *The Fall*, which has just come out about Fox News and and the end of the Murdoch Empire, as he forecasts it. And there's an interview with it in it with Roger Ailes about the creation of Fox, which I'll just read you a tiny segment and, and Rod, Robert will burst a gasket listening to this. I can just, he's, he's getting prepared to have to uh, avoid his side splitting. And Roger, Roger, Roger Ailes said, the people who Fox is for live in 1965, before mm. the Voting Rights Act. Ooh. And so what they're talking, and I think this is something very true in New Zealand, mm. not necessarily 1965, but this idea, and so 1965 is before the Voting Rights Act, which gave African-Americans the vote and equalized the vote. And there is this idea, I feel, in this campaign, whether it's, both, whether it's economics, Craig, or race relations, that there's a kind of golden era when we were all Kiwis and had a Holden Belmont or a, or a Kingswood. Probably Bernard had a, Fairmont, a Ford Fairmont, I imagine, in his family. Uh, we but, were a Kingswood family, but that's, yeah, that's but, by the bar. Uh, and, and we were a Morris 1800 family. But uh, you know, this idea that there was some down. period when everything was fine and we, were, we, i.e. four white men, were all, under, all in control. Jack Marshall, you know, Muldoon, Keith Holyoke. We built the Harbour Bridge, for Christ's sake, you know. Yeah, and I think one of the things we're discovering is that you know, uh, uh, involving a Trump um, uh, sort of you know style that where we we make America great again, and exactly. the great the and the, the again part. Yeah, exactly. Is Fox Taking News back GB, the country? Yeah, yeah. You know, Fox News, GB News in the UK, um, other outlets. They're not speaking to I would say those born in pre nineteen sixty five. They're speaking to the dispossessed. Yes, they're speaking to those who have lost political homes, who have lost a sense of economic uh, 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 purpose and a sense of economic um, uh, progress, and who are scratching around looking for someone to blame. Exactly. And so it then becomes a really easy place to start demagoguery. It becomes a really easy place to start to find easy easy uh, pariahs um, to hold out. 
And so the challenge and part of my work in doing this work on tax and elsewhere um, is saying there aren't easy answers. Yeah, well, you're doing, you know, uh, 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 not not that I believe in it, but you're doing God's work there. And I, I think we should work out deeper collaborations between, not necessarily between the trade union movement as such, but between, you know, highly skilled economists such as yourselves. Because I was, I was thinking of your one of your predecessors, who is, I think, one of New Zealand, or was until he got fired from most of his government jobs in Sky City, one of the highest paid New Zealand executives, or used to be the um, chief economist at the at the uh, Federation of Labour when I was a boy. Um, oh, is that Rob Campbell? Yeah, Rob Campbell. That's, that's your future. You could be the chairman of Sky City soon, um, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um, lovely to have you, Craig. It's uh, thank you very much for for being on, and and also thank you, Robert, for coming on to the show. Thank you. Um, in many ways, uh, actually, what we're, we're all doing is providing a bit of sort of independent think tanky type stuff, and um, I think what what Robert and uh, many other academics do is just amazing yeah. in um, getting a what lot of this do, Bernard, is What we do is, is think tankery without the responsibility. But also, yeah. just so apart from getting onto the skateboarding dog and the story, you guys will also love this a story in The New Yorker which um, about the two behavioral scientists who've been found to have completely made up all their own data. And both of one of them is very close to being a Nobel Prize winning behavioral scientist. It's not Kahneman, but it's one of Kahneman's acolytes. And they've completely made up well. their data about you know people's propensity to um, make up data, make up data <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and people have built you know nudge units and everything entirely on top of it, and oh. realised now that it's total bollocks. So I think we need more economists and fewer behavioural scientists. Well, um, you know, we, we have a very famous example um, in, in fiscal policy um, uh, of, of oh, uh, yeah. Roth and Rogoff, uh, basically, who said mm. that when economies reached around eighty to ninety percent debt to GDP ratios, you always had financial collapse. And they went back in time and showed that this was a repeated story over and over again. Whenever an economy reached around eighty to ninety percent debt to GDP, yeah, their economies would. Yeah, well, you you know Bernard has a has a podcast called um, When the Facts Change, and I, which is from uh, supposedly from Keynes, but I but I I think I've discovered that John Maynard Keynes didn't say it. But I was listening to another quite good podcast the other day where somebody says, as Winston Churchill said, when the facts change, I've changed my opinion. But but um, Rogoff and Reinhardt, they made this recommendation, and immediately after the GFC, and for ten years, a big chunk of the world basically used that as an excuse for the most awful austerity programs, which have led to many of the political problems, economic problems that we've got now. And what was it? There was some sort of spreadsheet problem? Mm. Oh, yeah. A spreadsheet <laughs> error, and, uh, which was discovered by a New Zealand researcher. It was a spreadsheet error, which basically meant the cells were pointing in the wrong direction. And so when you corrected for the error, the correlation it was, disappeared. Oh, yeah, but Craig, no. does, so did I interrupt you then? I do apologise because normally I only interrupt Josie. I'm, I only interrupt women usually. Oh no, I think I think we've all been well interrupted. <laughs> <laughs> so should we do the skateboarding dog? You're too modest. Should we do the skateboarding yes. dog? Skate, skateboarding dog. <laughs> so one of my favourite stories of this week, of the, of the week was the the Phillies football stadium declined to let a five foot uh, alligator be brought in on a leash as a comfort alligator. <laughs> Like a comfort animal, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which reminded me of a thing my father used to say as a classic dad joke. Because my father used to like word games of uh, allegations have been made, and we intend to find the alligator. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. So, what was the headline of the story? Oh, yeah. 
See you later. <laughs> Good fun. Dad jokes galore. Hey, um, wonderful to have you all on. Kakita, I know everyone. Have a great weekend. See you later. Bye-bye. See you. Thank Bye-bye. you. Thanks, Robert. Good weekend. Okay. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Cheers.